The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Defying the Odds with Innovation in CLL. Perspectives on Personalized Care, Multi-Agent Platforms, and Sequential Strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KYR 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this program, Defying the Odds with Innovation in CLL, Perspectives on Personalized Care, Multi-Agent Platforms, and Sequential Strategies. My name is Matt Davids. I'm from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and I'm very happy to be joined by my colleagues on stage here. Next to me here is Dr. Nicole Lamana from Columbia University in New York. Next to her is Dr. Adam Kate from The Ohio State University in Columbus, and then Dr. Bill Weirda from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. So just a few very brief introductory slides here to set the stage for CLL, certainly one of the fields in cancer that has changed quite a bit over the last decade. And you can see here the approval of several different new drugs over the last decade, three BTK inhibitors, covalent BTK inhibitors, including ibrutinib, the first-in-class agent, then acalabrutinib, and then most recently, just in January, xanabrutinib, FDA-approved for CLL. We have a BCL2 inhibitor, venetoclax, as well as a couple of non-covalent PTK inhibitors that are still in development for CLL, including pertabrutinib and nemtabrutinib. Pertabrutinib does now have a label in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, not yet approved in CLL. So despite all these advances we've had in CLL, there's real-world data now suggesting that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. So for example, a couple of real-world studies to remark on. One is a study of over 5,000 patients in the U.S. treated over the last eight years, eight, nine years, from 2013 through 2021. And although the practice patterns certainly have shifted, particularly over the last few years, close to half of patients received chemoimmunotherapy, chemotherapy alone, or single-agent rituximab in the frontline setting. In a separate study from the Flatiron database in over 3,600 patients at over 280 U.S. cancer centers between 2015 and 2020, 46% received frontline targeted therapy, but still 33% received chemoimmunotherapy and 20% just anti-CD20 monotherapy. There's some other major challenges that have arisen recently in CLL care. So one is the idea of clarifying what are the optimal candidates for time-limited versus continuous BTK therapy. And I think you'll see this as a theme throughout some of our presentations, sort of weighing those pros and cons. Second is addressing toxicity and treatment discontinuation with continuous BTK therapy. These are treatments that are very effective, but they require years of treatment and toxicities can arise. And we'll provide some of our perspectives on how to manage those. Providing options in covalent BTK inhibitor refractory CLL is increasingly an issue. You know, this was not a big problem a few years ago because patients were just getting started on frontline covalent BTKI, but now we all have patients who've been on ibrutinib for six, seven years or longer, or acalabrutinib for four or five years, and they're starting to progress. So we're seeing more and more of these patients progressing after covalent BTKI. And now we're even starting to see patients who are quote unquote double refractory. So they're progressing after a covalent BTKI and venetoclax. And how do we address the needs for that growing population of patients? So these are our goals for today to enhance your understanding of the evidence that's supporting established and emerging targeted and immunotherapy-based treatment platforms in CLL, to equip you with the skills you need to select personalized single-agent and combination platforms in the setting of treatment-naive CLL, to augment your ability to develop sequential therapy plans for relapsed refractory CLL that can include both establishing and emerging targeted options, potentially even immunotherapy, which is pretty exciting. CLL, we haven't had that until recently. And then also to help you craft evidence-based plans to address safety considerations associated with these targeted agents, as well as the emerging immunotherapy options in the CLL setting. So deep gratitude to our partners, the CLL Society. If you haven't visited their website, clllsociety.org is how you get there. This is a patient organization that is an incredible resource for CLL patients and CLL clinicians. 
You can see a lot of the different resources listed here. I won't read through each one of them, but just to know there's support groups, there's an expert access program that gives patients direct access to CLL experts through a virtual platform. There's information about how to deal with COVID-19. There's emailing programs to get opinions about cases. There's a whole program that we'll talk about called Test Before Treat. That's a biomarker education program. There's toolkits for patients. This is really useful to give to patients who are newly diagnosed to help learn about the disease and then helpful resources to assist both patients and caregivers. It's a very comprehensive website. It's a great resource. It's really a way to empower your patients. Sometimes patients do feel like they're navigating things alone, but by partnering with CLL Society, they gain the knowledge that they need to feel more comfortable with the diagnosis and to understand the path forward. So we have representative from the CLL Society here. There's a little table you might have seen when you came in. Please do take some free postcards and posters. This is a great way to have them in your office available for patients. I have these in my office. I hand them to patients who I meet as new consults and gets them to that website, and it's a great way to connect with the society. All right, so we'll transition now into a series of lectures and some cases. We're going to have a little bit of discussion on the stage as well. And this first section focuses on overcoming obstacles, specifically in treatment-naive CLL, both from combinations as well as strategies to personalize treatment selection. And so our first speaker is Dr. Nicole Lamana, and she's going to be talking about answering questions specifically focused on continuous BTK inhibitor therapy. So Nicole, the floor is yours. So as we noted earlier, you know, in the treatment naive setting, clearly whether you have a deletion 17P or TP53 mutation or do not, obviously all the targeted therapies are approved, you know, from a calibrutinib or even a brutinib as well as xanabrutinib, so the covalent BTKs, and of course venetoclax and obinutuzumab is approved in the frontline setting, which is a time-limited, and Matt's going to talk about the time-limited combinations, but certainly this is approved, again, whether you have a 17P or P53 mutation or do not, and so all your options are available. What we're going to talk about is how to sort of think about your options and tailor them for your patients accordingly. Although knowing, you know, we often talk about this, knowing that many of your patients, depending upon where they are in their journey, if they're very young with CLL, they might see more than one therapy and of course get both a BTK and venetoclax. And that's when we talk about the double refractory, which we'll be talking about later. I think Bill's got that session. So we'll talk about double refractory as well. As we have longer follow-up with the covalent BTK inhibitors, certainly with longer, more mature data from the major randomized studies against chemoimmunotherapy from the Alliance, the Elevate-TN, and Sequoia studies, you can see that the PFS for these studies has continued to show the benefit of covalent BTKs, whether it be abrutinib, acalabrutinib, or xanabrutinib, compared to the chemoimmunotherapy arms that they were randomized against. When we talk about patients with high-risk disease, however, you know, the good news is we're seeing that these agents are certainly very well-suited for patients with high-risk disease. So whether they have deletion 17P or TP53 mutation, you could see how well, and traditionally, and I'm not showing all this data, but when you compare them to chemoimmunotherapy, how well the BTK inhibitors have done with patients for high-risk disease. You could see here with this study, you could see the median PFS was not reached, the median follow-up here about 50 months. So again, compared to chemoimmunotherapy, when most of these patients would initially respond respond to agents like FCR, but then relapse quite quickly, you know, certainly the overall survival of our patients with high-risk features has improved dramatically with these agents. Now, again, this is not a randomized comparison, but we're going to talk a little bit about this, and we always debate about this when we talk about cases. So certainly when you talk about time-limited therapy versus continuous covalent BTK inhibitor-based therapy in a patient with high-risk features, again, non-randomized, here's the Illuminate study, and you can see this was with a brutinib in an older patient population, and you can see how well they've done, and this is the VENG or VEN-obinutuzumab in the CLL14. The median PFS was reached here now at 49 months for the patients with TP53. So again, it's not randomized data, 
but it does note us to pause when we talk about whether or not continuous therapy versus time-limited therapy, at least with Ven OB in this situation, is more appropriate for the high-risk individuals. Here are some other studies for the other covalent BTK inhibitors that have also looked at their deletion 7TP or TP53 subgroups. So again, we talked about abrutinib and how well it's done because it's obviously the BTK inhibitor that has been the longest on the market since 2013. So we have the most mature data in that setting. But you can see there's obviously in acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, we also have very good data in patients with high-risk features and how well these patients have done with regards to their median PFS. Now, what about toxicity? So we know that the covalent BTK inhibitors have a host of toxicities that are unique to this class. The cardiac toxicities, we talk mostly about atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter, but of course there are ventricular arrhythmias that could occur. Arthralgias, which sometimes can be very debilitating, and despite supportive messages, some of our patients come off due to these reasons. Infections, I think we see in all patients with CLL, so I don't know that it's necessarily unique to the BTK inhibitors. I think most of us are used to dealing with the infectious complications in our patients with CLL, so you know, I kind of say that it's every agent that we use for CLL. So, you know, not not unique to BTK. And then, of course, GI issues can come about. So diarrhea, hypertension, and we'll talk about that amongst the different agents, and then an increased risk of bruising and bleeding. But there's some other toxicities that patients note, the dermatologic changes, the pitting of their nails. Some people report some hair thinning. Fatigue can be an issue, although it always makes us nervous that something else is going on. If somebody tells us they have fatigue, we're always also ruling out, is that the drug? Is that something else? Then, as I said, the ventricular arrhythmias, which are not as frequent, but certainly notable concerning, and then some cytopenias that can develop as well. Now, obviously, the implications about the off-target effects of the covalent BTK inhibitors, the less selective of the BTK, certainly there's more off-target effects. And so certainly there are slightly differences that we see in the off-target effects that then can cause the bleeding cardiacticity related to tech and EGFR for rash, diarrhea, arthralgias. And this is where we see the subtle differences between some of the covalent BTK inhibitors. As you well aware, there are two main trials in the relapse refractory setting that looked at abrutinib compared to either acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib. This is the Elevate RR. This was abrutinib versus acalabrutinib in the relapse refractory setting. The median number of prior regimens in this study was two. And after a median follow-up of about 41 months, the PFS with acalabrutinib was non-inferior to abrutinib in this setting. But notably, what we talk about is the differences possibly in some of the adverse events that we talk about that I noted previously with the covalent BTK inhibitors, most notably with atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. So there was a decreased incidence of that, but you could also see there was a slight decreased incidence of some of the other adverse events such as hypertension and bleeding issues in this head-to-head study. This was a retrospective analysis in terms of time to treatment discontinuation of abrutinib or acalabrutinib. So this was a database of about 2,500 patients with CLL with a median observation of about 16 months. And you can see there's a slight difference in the time to treatment discontinuation for patients, whether they were treated with acalabrutinib after or abrutinib. With most patients, the time to their treatment discontinuation a little bit shorter with abrutinib versus acalabrutinib, again, in this retrospective analysis. Now, what about the head-to-head study of Alpine, which was the Xanabrutinib versus Abrutinib, again, in the relapse refractory setting? The median prior lines in this study was one, and the median follow-up here was about 30 months. There was a difference in the PFS with Xanabrutinib versus Abrutinib. Obviously, we're all looking for when this was reported. This was the second year of follow-up, so now we have over two years of data where the PFS has been maintained differently between the two agents. Obviously, many of us are looking forward to longer-term data on this. 
but there was also a slight difference in some of the adverse events associated between these two agents, again, with atrial fib and atrial flutter. Notably, there was not a difference in hypertension, so I think many of us talk about how that could play into the fact that when we think about some of the cardiac events, we were noting, well, maybe it's because there's more hypertension, and so people have more cardiac, you know, atrial fib, atrial flutter, but in this study, that did not bear out. And hemorrhage was very similar between the two agents, so I think there's less, you know, at least in this head-to-head study, there's more similarity between some of the adverse events versus dissimilarity that was noted in the other, in the Elevate study that I just showed you. But the cardiac events were notably different in this study, and serious cardiac events, which were much different between xanabrutinib versus abrutinib, and this led to less discontinuations on therapy in the xanabrutinib arm versus abrutinib. So when we talk about the cardiovascular risk with the BTKIs in CLL, of course, I think that if somebody doesn't have any risk factors, I think all of them are appropriate. If there are other safety concerns that somebody has hypertension, of course, we always want them to be very well controlled. But here's where you can start splitting hairs between the different covalent BTK inhibitors, and then you'd consider a second generation. So I think that, you know, many of us, if we've had patients now who've been on a brutinib for many years since it was the first covalent BTK inhibitor, I certainly haven't changed. If they're doing otherwise well, I don't change my patients in practice. Certainly when I'm considering a newer patient on therapy, depending upon their comorbidities. Now we obviously have newer agents, and then you take those factors into consideration, and you might be giving a second-generation BTK inhibitor based on some of their comorbidities. In terms of some of the other risks, some of the other toxicities that we talked about, you know, certainly I think you need to counsel patients that with all the covalent BTK inhibitors, there's a risk of bleeding. And if they're going to have a surgical procedure, you know, you need to caution them because you may be holding their therapy prior to a surgical procedure, particularly if it's a major surgery versus a minor surgery. You might counsel them about how many days they should be off their covalent BTK inhibitor. We sort of dissuade not giving concomitant warfarin. I'm not going to say I've never done that, but I think there are very extenuating circumstances to do that depending upon your needs of treatment for that particular patient. And you're, look, you're obviously going to consider if they can be changed to a non-warfarin anticoagulation. Infections, I think, again, we deal with that with all our patients. You're going to counsel them about calling for signs or symptoms of an infection. Cardiovascular risk factors, obviously, you know, I tend to plug our cardio-oncologists in on these patients or making sure that they have good follow-up. If they have a history of hypertension, they're on adequate medication, pre-starting a BTK inhibitor, or very well plugged in and letting either their primary care doctor or the cardiologist know that I'm starting an agent that could worsen their hypertension. I might need their help along the way. And then cytopenias, we know that these drugs sometimes can cause neutropenia, sometimes can cause thrombocytopenia. And so you do need to follow their blood counts and monitor them and treat accordingly. Sometimes patients do need dose reductions or help with growth factor or holding of their dose depending upon the cytopenias. And then with regards to the newer acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, the second generation BTK inhibitors, there are some unique issues. You know, there are some more headaches that are involved with acalabrutinib when you initially start therapy. I think we just warn our patients that this could occur. We talk about Tylenol and caffeine and sort of prompting them. You know, this is not usually, I don't think I've ever taken off anybody for due to these side effects. I don't know if my colleagues have, but certainly this is not something that usually has been troublesome for them. And then obviously with PPIs, I think now that the formulation has been replaced, I think this sort of is a non-discussion anymore, but between any of the covalent BTK inhibitors in terms of the proton pump inhibitors. And there's a little bit more neutropenia for sure with xanabrutinib, and so there's, you know, ways to manage that accordingly. Now, just briefly, you know, I think that if somebody is going to use a covalent BTK inhibitor, there is the sequencing data, and just to briefly discuss that, certainly I think if somebody's having very good efficacy from a covalent BTK inhibitor, you know, and experiences a side effect, depending upon that side effect, it's nice to be able to try to see whether or not you can challenge with another covalent BTK inhibitor so you don't lose the efficacy that you have. Again, knowing that patients might have to go on to different types of agents during their course of their CLL journey, if somebody has an intolerance issue, that's not something that you would otherwise not consider using the class at 
at all, like a CNS hemorrhage, you know, then you can possibly sequence to another agent. So this is some data that Kerry Rogers presented on a small setting of patients who were intolerant to a brutinib and then went on to a calibrutinib. And some of those had a lower grade of whatever intolerance that they had and then were able to be rechallenged. I think that gives us pause to say this is something that can be done. Not all the patients can tolerate it, but I think that's something to consider. And then another small study looking at xanabrutinib in patients who had either a brutinib or a calibrutinib and then were intolerant to those and then were rechallenged with xanabrutinib. So I do think that, you know, sometimes patients can be rechallenged on another covalent BTK inhibitor successfully, and then you're able to still, you know, continue the efficacy that they're currently having to the covalent BTK inhibitor. And I think that's important depending upon where they are. Now, what about the addition of an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody to a covalent BTK inhibitor? And this often starts as a lot of debate that we talk about. You know, does adding an antibody make a difference? Well, initially, when we added rituximab to a brutinib, this is the Alliance study. So this had a brutinib and a brutinib and rituximab versus bendamustine and rituximab. There didn't seem to be any difference between the addition of rituximab to the addition of a brutinib here with ARM2 and ARM3 that you can see. And then, of course, here's the Illuminate study with a brutinib and obinutuzumab. Of course, we don't have a single arm, the monotherapy arm with a brutinib in this study to know compared to clarimacillin and obinutuzumab. But certainly, the data is intriguing. And of course, we have the acalabrutinib data with the acalabrutinib monotherapy versus acalabrutinib obinutuzumab versus clarimacillobinutuzumab in the Elevate TN. And certainly, there is some suggestion that perhaps obinutuzumab does add a slight difference both in the PFS and in a subgroup analysis in the overall survival, particularly in patients with unmutated IGHV. So I think that this does give us pause, and certainly this is an option that remains viable for patients. You know, obviously, for many individuals, you know, when we talk about this, and you can debate about this again of who the right patients are to fit when you add an antibody in, the question remains, you know, if somebody is going to take a chronic pill, do they want to add the intravenous component into the mix? COVID was a prime example where nobody wanted to come in. So a lot of us would drop the antibody during that time. Obviously, the antibodies can give more neutropenia. So you have to factor that in. So there could be more infectious issues that you have to take into consideration. So I think, you know, the antibody issue still remains a question, although I think this data, you know, with longer follow-up will be intriguing to see where we might be adding this in particular for certain subgroups, depending upon how that whole holds over time. But I do think it's still a patient choice and a patient preference for the majority if somebody's going to continue can take chronic continuous oral therapy whether they want an antibody added to the mix. So just to kind of sum up on here, BTK inhibitors show high efficacy in CLL, including in patients with high-risk disease, particularly 17P and TP53. The choice of BTK should be guided by comorbidities and patient preferences. And so I think you have to discuss about all the side effects of the covalent BTK inhibitors, regardless of which one you're using. Whether or not, I think the obinutuzumab acala data is very important. And certainly I think the analysis, you know, with longer follow-up might show a real important difference where we might be doing this a lot more routinely. However, I think you need to discuss discuss this with a particular patient about whether or not they want an anti-CD20 added. And I do think there are certain circumstances where an antibody might be important, particularly if they have profound autoimmune cytopenias and you want to front load the antibody and get their counts better and then continue them on the oral agent. So I do think there are certain circumstances or immune issues where an antibody might be particularly important, but I think it's not necessarily for all patients across the board. And I'm sure we can talk about that amongst our colleagues. So here's a 75-year-old symptomatic CLL, advanced rise stage 3. He has B symptoms. He's unmutated, TP53 wild type. He has a history of hypertension. Oh, and throw in renal insufficiency with a creatinine of 2.1. So therapies, continuous BTK or fixed duration venetoclax. How do toxicity, convenience, and patient preferences factor into decisions? If a BTK inhibitor, which one? Add a CD20 or not? All right. So a lot of important questions here. Maybe, Adam, do you want to take the first one? How, how are you thinking about continuous treatment? versus fixed duration in this patient? Sure. So I think what 
gives me pause about using fixed duration venetoclax in this particular patient is the kidney insufficiency. So one of the things that we have to pay mind when we start somebody on venetoclax is to monitor them for tumor lysis syndrome. And so when all things are equal and I'm trying to decide what to give somebody, I usually use comorbidities as a definite factor. And if somebody has kidney dysfunction, I tend to avoid venetoclax. I'm not saying that I don't ever give venetoclax in this case, but if I had to choose one, I would choose a continuous BTK inhibitor. Now, which continuous BTK inhibitor would I use? I would tend to use acalabrutinib in this patient. And the reason why I would tend to use acalabrutinib in this patient, and although I'm doing a cross-trial comparison here, when we looked and we saw the data from Alpine and we saw the rate of hypertension was similar from xanabrutinib to abrutinib, whereas in Elevate RR, the rate of hypertension in acalabrutinib was much less than abrutinib, I tend to pick acalabrutinib over xanabrutinib when I'm thinking about someone who has hypertension. And, and Bill, what about this question of adding a CD20 antibody? Would you consider that for this patient? I think Nicole sort of alluded to what our current thoughts are on CD20 antibody, and I don't do it routinely. I would probably not do it for this patient. It is useful in some circumstances if you have patients with very high white counts that you want to get quicker control of their disease and you want to bring their white count down because, as we know, it will go up when you start them on a BTK inhibitor. If they have significant anemia and you want to accelerate marrow recovery, CD20 may be helpful in that. So the answer would be for this patient, probably not. And I really only use it in certain circumstances. Great. Thank you. Fair enough. All right. Cool. Yeah, I agree. So I think everybody answered that accordingly. I think most of us would choose a second-generation BTK inhibitor. And those fine splitting hair points about hypertension at Cala and Xano, I think these are what we always debate about. And obviously, you know, I don't think there'll ever be a head-to-head of a Cala and Xano, so we could wipe that out. But given the data that we've seen, I think most of us would probably choose a newer-generation BTK inhibitor. And I, too, and not to say I've never given Ven in a renally insufficient patient, but you got to do so carefully. And some of us are maybe a little bit more privileged because we could do that in an inpatient setting. Setting, but that's not really, you know, I think this would be a risky thing to do in an outpatient setting given the creatinine of 2.1. So I'm going to turn this back to Matt and he's going to talk more about fixed duration platforms as well. Great. Thanks so much, Nicole. Fantastic overview of continuous BTK inhibitor data. Now I'll talk about some of the data for fixed duration BCEL2 inhibitor, which is mostly combination data. All right. So far, we've been mostly talking about the top row here with our modern therapies. We can achieve very good remissions with our patients, but with BTK inhibitors, we're kind of controlling the disease. We're prolonging PFS, but this is really, to a large degree, independent of the depth of response. We don't need to achieve undetectable minimal residual disease, for example, to control the disease effectively with continuous BTK inhibitors, but we need to continue giving the drugs. So the bottom row here is sort of a, a different approach where with fixed duration therapies like venetoclax and obinutuzumab, the goal really is to maximize the depth of response, really disease eradication and achieving undetectable minimal residual disease as a way to prolong PFS without the need for ongoing therapy. And so one of the real landmark studies here that supports this approach is CLL-14, which you're probably familiar with. This was a frontline study in patients who tended to be older or with significant coexisting medical comorbidities, and they were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to venetoclax with obinutuzumab with a year of venetoclax versus a year of chlorambucil with obinutuzumab. Six-month combination in both cases, followed by six months of the oral therapy. Primary endpoint of progression-free survival. So we now have five-year data from this study that were recently published, and you can see at five years of randomization, certainly the patients with Ven-Obin or Ven-G uh, were doing better than obinutuzumab chlorambucil. And I think a useful number to have in mind is the PFS is about 62.6% with the Ven-Obin arm. And remember, that's with one year of therapy. So median PFS has not yet been reached in this study with five years of follow-up. 
Now, if you look at the higher risk subgroups, starting with IGHV status in the top left, you can see that there are groups that have shorter duration of response, shorter PFS with venetoclaxobinutuzumab. So the second line that's diving down there a little bit is the unmutated IGHV patients. So these patients do have a shorter PFS than patients with mutated IGHV when they're treated with venobin, but still the median PFS for that unmutated IGHV group is just over five years. So it's still pretty respectable for one year of treatment. And even for the patients in the lower left with TP53 aberrant CLL, this is a highest risk population that we have, those patients still enjoy a median PFS of just over four years with one year of venobin therapy. Now the numbers are pretty small in the lower left graph. There's only about 25 patients on that venobin arm. So this is an area where we need more data, I think, to understand number one, in larger numbers, how does venobin perform? And then number two, as we'll probably talk about in some of the discussion, what would happen if we retreated those patients with venobin a second time? Could we prolong the time until they needed a BTK inhibitor, for example? Which I think is a very relevant question in terms of the overall benefit of the therapy. So in terms of those goals of achieving undetectable MRD, so on the left in the bar graph, you can see in the blue bars the venobin results. So in the peripheral blood, over three-quarters of patients achieved undetectable MRD, and in the bone marrow, 57%, so majority of patients getting into these deep responses. And in the PFS curves on the right, it's broken down by different levels of attaining undetectable MRD. And you can see that patients who have these very deep undetectable MRD responses enjoy very long progression-free survival. And that bottom curve there is patients who still have detectable MRD who have a much shorter PFS after the year of venobin. So again, that was a study focused on older patients, those with comorbidities. And for a while, we were kind of extrapolating and saying this probably would work well in young fit patients. We probably have all treated a lot of young fit patients over the last four years with venobin. But really, it was just recently that we saw the publication of the CLL-13 Gaia study in the New England Journal, which was the first larger randomized study to look at venobin in a young fit population. And as you can see, this was quite a large study by CLL standards. Over 900 patients were randomized, and they were all younger fit patients. And this study excluded patients with high-risk disease because it had a chemoimmunotherapy control arm. So that arm was FCR or BR, and it was compared to one of three different venetoclax-based regimens. So venetoclax with rituximab, with obinutuzumab, or a triplet therapy of abrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab. And there were co-primary endpoints of this study of undetectable MRD at the end of the 15-month therapy or PFS analysis. And so in this paper, we see both co-primary endpoints published now. On the left, you can see the peripheral blood and bone marrow MRD at final restaging for each of the four arms. And if you follow those darker blue bars toward the bottom, I think that's probably the most informative. That's the undetectable MRD rate, in this case at the level of 10 to the minus 4. And you can see that the chemo immunotherapy and venrituximab actually look pretty similar. Not that much benefit of the venrituximab in that setting. Where you really see the MRD rates jump up is with venobin. And so you can see, for example, at the top in the blood, 86% of patients achieved undetectable MRD with venobin. So it seems like the antibody here actually really makes a big difference, obin versus rituximab. You also have some triplet data here. The MRD rates are numerically a little bit higher when you have the three drugs with adding in the abrutinib, 92% in the blood, for example, versus 86% with the doublet. But when you see in the lower right, the PFS curves, seems like they're pretty much overlapping at this point. There, again, is a slight numerical advantage to the triplet therapy over venobin, but the venobin results also look very good in this young fit population. And so this is very reassuring data that we can safely and effectively use this regimen in our younger, fitter patients. So really one of the key questions in the field right now is how do the continuous treatment strategies compare to time-limited venetoclax combinations? And we don't have randomized data yet really to understand that question, but we will hopefully relatively soon from this study called CLL-17, which is an ongoing study mostly in Europe, 860 or so patients, and it's randomizing patients to a continuous abrutinib strategy versus one of two different time-limited venetoclax strategies, the standard venobin that I just showed you, or venetoclax plus abrutinib, which we'll review some data on shortly. 
And the primary endpoint of this study is progression-free survival. So I think this will be a very informative trial. It is fully accrued at this point, but it will be a while still till we see some of the data. So what about the combination of BTK inhibitors with BCL2 inhibitors? Why choose? Why not just combine them? Certainly from a preclinical standpoint, there's synergy. There's different compartmental effects of these drugs. We think that venetoclax is probably a little bit better at quickly clearing marrow disease, whereas BTK inhibitors are very particularly effective at clearing large lymph node disease. These drugs have non-overlapping toxicity profiles. As a principle, of course, in cancer therapy, when we combine drugs with different mechanisms, we hope to reduce the risk of resistance. And so this is the potential for a highly effective time-limited therapy and with the added benefit that it's all oral compared to the Van Oben, which requires the infusions. So after some initial work with an excellent IST that was led at MD Anderson, then the Captivate study, which was a large phase two experience, was reported out. And Bill was also very involved with this study. And this was fixed duration ibrutinib plus venetoclax in one arm of the study. That's the data that I'm showing you here. There's another arm of the study that used MRD-guided therapy. But just for simplicity here, showing you the data for fixed duration I plus V. This is a three-month lead-in with ibrutinib monotherapy followed by combination with venetoclax for one year. So it's about a 15-month or 15-cycle therapy. So with this all oral regimen, you can see complete remission rates north of 50%, and that was equivalent in patients with high-risk CLL, TP53 aberrant versus not. And the right side, you can see the PFS curves, which so far look excellent. You see the treatment period shaded there, darker blue. And so even when patients stop the treatment at the 15-month mark, you can see those curves are holding up nicely so far. And just to highlight at this ASCO meeting on Monday morning, there will be a four-year follow-up update from this fixed-duration cohort, so please stay tuned for that. So Captivate was kind of a younger, fitter population for the most part. This regimen, I plus V, was also explored in an older population with comorbidities in the GLOW study. This is a randomized phase three trial that's comparing ibrutinib plus venetoclax to obinutuzumab with chlorambucil. And you see the PFS curves on the right certainly favor ibrutinib plus venetoclax, which was not unexpected. And you can see dramatic reduction in the risk of progression and death by close to 80%, higher CR rates with I plus V. And so this did lead to the EMA approval of ibrutinib plus venetoclax for previously untreated CLL. However, it's not been approved in the United States. And that may have to do with some of the toxicity concerns around ibrutinib plus venetoclax in this older population. So you can see here the median age of the studies. With GLOW, the median age is 71. And you can see that there were significant numbers of patients with grade three or higher AEs, SAEs, including infections, atrial fibrillation. And most concerningly, there were four deaths related to cardiovascular complications in the ibrutinib plus venetoclax arm, which was on treatment. So this has certainly given pause to this combination in older patients and those with comorbidities. Whereas with the Captivate study, where the median age is 60, you can see that the rates of grade three or higher AEs are lower. They have not seen the cardiovascular complications that have been seen in the older population. So I think it really is important to think about the patient population that you're treating with these regimens. And then just some comparative data for CLL14 there. Again, a patient population that's older, median age of 72, and still relatively high rates of grade three or higher neutropenia with this regimen, but typically very manageable with growth factor support, occasionally with dose reduction or dose holds. So, you know, sort of take home from these combinations they're all highly effective. I think safety needs to be obviously an important concern, especially in our older patients. And so we need to be monitoring this closely in future studies. So another exciting study that's been ongoing for the last several years that's actually going to be reported at this ASCO meeting for the first time is this Alliance AO4-1702 study. This is a phase three trial randomizing treatment-naive older patients to the triplet therapy of IVO to a doublet therapy of abrutinib plus obinutuzumab. And the IVO in this study is response-guided in terms of discontinuation versus the IO, the abrutinib is indefinite therapy. So we haven't seen all the data yet, but just from the abstract, the median follow-up in this presentation, it sounds like it's going to be relatively short at just 14 months. 
but the PFS so far looks pretty comparable between these two arms. We get a sense from the abstract that COVID-19 had a significant impact on the outcome of this study based on the timing of the study. But the overall conclusion so far is that the PFS for the triplet is not superior to the doublet in these older patients in the setting of the COVID pandemic. So anticipating some of these potential toxicities, we several years ago had put together an investigator-initiated trial of acalabrutinib with venetoclax and obinutuzumab, so a triplet therapy with the next-generation BTK inhibitor. And we recently updated these data at the ASH meeting with now 68 patients enrolled in this phase two study. And we enriched this population for higher-risk patients. So actually 60% of the patients on the study had TP53 aberrant disease. Close to three-quarters of the patients had unmutated IGHV. And on the right, you can see that we're seeing excellent efficacy, again, with CR rates in the range of about 50% and undetectable MRD rates in the bone marrow and in the blood in upwards of 85% or so. So this has been a very well tolerated triplet as well, certainly very active. The responses seem durable so far, although the follow-up's relatively short at the median of about three years, but notably low rates of cardiac and infectious toxicities so far in this study. And so this has now moved into the phase three setting in a couple of different studies. So the CLL-16 study, which is ongoing, mostly in Europe, is a randomized trial comparing AVO as a triplet to venobin. And this is specifically for patients who have higher risk disease, at least complex karyotype, but also patients with TP53 aberrant disease. And this study will eventually report on a progression-free survival primary endpoint, and the study is still ongoing. The MAGIC study in the U.S. and now globally also is looking at trying to identify what's the optimal doublet therapy for venetoclax. Is it with acalabrutinib or with obinutuzumab? So you can see here that patients get randomized one-to-one to the AV doublet or to venobin. And one of the unique aspects of the MAGIC study is that both arms of the study are MRD-guided in terms of the therapy duration. So after the initial year of combination with venetoclax, patients have an assessment for MRD. And this is done through a next-generation sequencing assay at a level of 10 to the minus fifth, so pretty stringent requirement, but if they are undetectable at that point, they would stop therapy. If they still have detectable MRD at that threshold, they continue on to get a second year of venetoclax treatment, and then all patients stop at the end of the 24 months. And this study will eventually read out with a PFS endpoint. The study is ongoing at many different sites around the country, so please do consider it if you have it open near you. Now, there's also exciting data with xanabrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab. This is the Bovin study that was published by Jake Sumerai and colleagues from MGH. This was 39 patients treated with this triplet. This study did not enhance for high-risk patients, so it was more of a kind of typical representative CLL population. About 13% were high-risk, 72% with unmutated IGHV, and 89% of the patients on this study were able to achieve undetectable MRD. Again, with good tolerability, you see some low-grade thrombocytopenia, fatigue, neutropenia. But grade 3 neutropenia only occurred in about 18% of patients on this study. And based on the swimmer plot on the right, you can see patients are getting out now past a year and a half to two years. Most of them are off therapy and still in remission. A xanabrutinib venetoclax doublet is also being examined as part of the Sequoia study. Remember, Sequoia is this large study that was the registrational trial for xanabrutinib. That's the cohort one there, which was comparing xanabrutinib to BR in a lower-risk population. And then in the higher-risk patients with TP53 aberrant disease, there was a xanabrutinib monotherapy arm, and then at the bottom, xanabrutinib plus venetoclax. And we saw just a little bit of these data at the ASH meeting in 2021. The overall response rate with XANU plus VEN was quite high at 97%. The PFS data were relatively immature at that point, so we look forward to seeing more data from this study soon. And there's many other trials now investigating newer combinations and time-limited options. A lot of these studies are actually focusing on younger fit patients. Those first few, like Cristallo, is comparing chemoimmunotherapy to venobin. The Philo group in France is looking at chemoimmunotherapy versus abrutinib plus venetoclax in the erratic study. A large study in the UK that's been going on for a while is comparing various abrutinib-based combinations, abrutinib-rituximab, abrutinib-venetoclax to FCR. Here in the US, the parallel study to the Alliance trial that's going to be presented at this ASCO meeting is an ECOG study looking at that same triplet of IVO versus 
versus IO as a doublet, but the ECUG study is focused on the younger and fitter patients and excludes patients with deletion 17P. And then another exciting ongoing study is called Amplify, and this is the registrational trial for the acalabrutinib venetoclax doublet and also potentially AVO as a triplet and both of those are being compared to FCR and BR in a population that excludes the high-risk patients. So that's mostly the data that I wanted to show you around the combinations. Just a few slides here with a few kind of tips and tricks about venetoclax AE management and monitoring. So myelosuppression is the most common thing we, we tend to see with venetoclax. Even though people talk a lot about tumor lysis syndrome, we don't tend to see it much when we use the ramp up, but we do see a lot of neutropenia. And so we typically will give growth factor support. I typically like to give it concomitantly with venetoclax, at least initially, and patients are usually very responsive. So I tend to wait until I have patients who are not responding to growth factor to think about holding the dose or reducing the dose. Certainly we need to monitor patients closely for infection, but despite the high rates of neutropenia, the rates of febrile neutropenia with venetoclax therapy are relatively low, sort of in the range of about 5%. GI events are also relatively common, low-grade diarrhea, nausea. Typically as patients are getting up to the higher doses, typically they get used to that and becomes less of an issue over time and we use supportive care for that. And of course we don't administer live attenuated vaccines to any patients with CLL, particularly in patients who are on therapy. With TLS, we have to assess TLS risk in our patients, and that means performing a CT scan if you're going to be starting a patient on venetoclax, because sometimes there can be bulky internal adenopathy that we can't palpate on exam, and we need to know about that to properly risk stratify patients. We need to remember to send that allopurinol script a few days ahead of time and have the patient actually start it to premedicate and make sure patients are staying well hydrated. And we need to employ more intensive monitoring measures for patients who have a very high disease burden, things like IV hydration, frequent monitoring, which hopefully can be done in the outpatient setting in most cases, but in some cases will require hospitalization to make sure you're getting labs back in real time. Now, the good thing is that although you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get started on the venetoclax and you have to go through some of those obinutuzumab infusions early on, with time-limited therapy, I think this is a great example from the CLL-14 study. If you compare the toxicities during treatment to the toxicities after treatment, you see a dramatic reduction here. So very low rates of neutropenia or febrile neutropenia, of course, after treatment because these patients are doing well now on observation. And I think that is a difference compared to the continuous BTK inhibitors, as you heard, where there's these ongoing risks of bleeding and bruising, there's hypertension that can arise later, AFib, flutter, etc. Okay, so we have another patient here now. This is a 74-year-old man who has normal fish, unmutated IGHV, CLL, TP53 is wild type, initially observed for about three years, but now treatment is needed. The patient has bulky lymph node disease, so biggest lymph node conglomerate is seven centimeters, absolute lymphocyte count of 20,000. And so we can consider continuous BTKI or fixed duration venetoclax here. And how do we factor the goals of therapy and patient preferences into this equation? Nicole, maybe you can start on this one. How are you thinking about this patient? Well, obviously, you know, you can go either way. I'm not going to but, you know, patient preference would be important. For the bulk, you know, he's moderate risk, so you have to do consider it. So if you thought he was unfit or had any renal insufficiency, if you're going to do time-limited therapy, you know, and he was, as I said, had any renal insufficiency or was a little frail, I might bring him in, but you got to monitor him closely if you're going to do Venobi, but that's completely okay to do in this situation. So I think, you know, patient preference is one. If he wants a time-limited approach, do I think he could do a BTK? I do, but this is a good person to also do time-limited. I have no problem with that. Great. I agree. All right. So patients counseled, we discussed treatment goals, continuous versus fixed duration, and this patient does choose venobin. So as Nicole was saying, technically this patient is at a medium risk for TLS based on the lymphocyte count being less than 25,000, but the lymph nodes being greater than five centimeters. But I completely agree. If this were a patient who also had some renal dysfunction or you know some other comorbidities, I might want to admit this patient and, and monitor them a little bit more closely. But in this case, the patient really didn't have other comorbidities, started on the usual 20 milligrams, ramped up to 400 milligrams over five weeks. You can see the safety measures employed there in terms of monitoring for labs and so forth, but this patient did very well. Just another plug for the CLL Society Test Before Treat program. 
This is a way to raise awareness about the importance of testing for prognostic markers, and you can see sort of the algorithm there, particularly around avoiding chemotherapy-based treatment for patients with higher-risk disease markers. So more information about this on the CLL Society website. There's also the free patient toolkit. You can see here, again, a variety of handouts that you can give to patients, very practical, written at a patient level. A lot of my patients really enjoy reading through those. All right, so we're going to maintain momentum and move into the next section on customizing sequential therapy in the wake of new evidence. And Adam is going to take us through this section on moving beyond covalent PTK inhibitors in pre-treated CLL settings. So Adam, take it away. Thanks, Matt. So I have the challenge of describing BTK resistance to everybody. So we have the covalent BTK emitters, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanabrutinib. And they all bind to the BTK protein kinase in a similar way. And because they bind at this kinase pocket, they can develop a mutation from the cysteine residue to the serine residue. And that's what we're talking about when we say C481S. So BTK C481S mutations confer resistance to the covalent BTK inhibitors because they bind at the specific site. And so we know that BTK resistance mutations contribute to disease progression in patients on therapy with covalent BTK inhibitors. So here we have some data that looks at patients who progressed, and it looks at what mutations were present at progression. So on the left, we have our Kaplan-Meier curve of reasons why patients stopped BTK inhibitors. This was a pooled analysis of four prospective studies, and they either stopped because they were intolerant to the BTK inhibitors, they developed progression, or they had Richter's transformation. And when they looked at patients who had progressed on ibrutinib, what they found was that about 56% harbored a BTK mutation, although we highlight the C481S mutation, there are multiple different mutations that can occur that confer resistance. And they also had resistance to the PLC gamma 2. So PLC gamma 2 lies downstream of BTK when BCR signaling occurs. So you imagine that cancer, when it tries to develop resistance to a small molecule inhibitor, it might lead to overexpression of downstream kinases after BTK. So here's an example of that in this particular disease. So now when we think about patients who've received covalent BTK inhibitors as their first line of therapy and what to give them next, I think that patients fall into three camps. First, they can fall into the intolerance camp. And so for patients who are intolerant to BTK inhibitors, you have a couple of good options as your second line of therapy. You can either use venetoclax plus an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, or you can use an alternative BTK inhibitor. So Nicole had showed you all how patients who took ibrutinib can tolerate acalabrutinib, and those who took ibrutinib or acalabrutinib can tolerate xanabrutinib. So here's a situation where you could switch a BTK inhibitor. And then after they get their second line therapy, they can then use whatever agent they haven't received so far. And then Bill will take us home and talk about what patients can get after they receive both a BTKI and a BCL2 inhibitor. You can have patients who have progression on treatment. And here, really, the only option that we have as standard of care currently is the venetoclax plus anti-CD monoclonal antibody. Or you can have patients who had a response to BTK inhibitor and then progressed and then they kind of follow the same pathways that we just outlined. But these are the three camps that people fall into. And really, these patients who develop these BTK resistance mutations are really a high-risk group of patients. So let's start off by talking about the utility of venetoclax plus rituximab, the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, in the second-line therapy. We really don't have much data looking at venetoclax after BTK inhibitors. And I'll show you the one trial that we do have in the next slide. So here's the Murano trial, which was the phase three randomized trial that led to the approval of venetoclax plus rituximab in the second line. And it was compared to BR. And here you see that the use of venetoclax plus rituximab led to a significant improvement in both progression-free survival and overall survival. 
patients had to have had on average over three lines of prior therapy. There was no new safety signals were identified three years after end of treatment. And a very low number of patients had received B-cell receptor inhibitor therapy. And most likely in this case, although it wasn't outlined in the trial, they didn't likely get ibrutinib. They probably got one of the PI3K inhibitors if I were half to the guess here. Now, this is really the only trial that we have, the only prospective study that evaluates the use of venetoclax aflibrutinib, and this was published by Jeff Jones. And here we show that basically patients did pretty well after they got abrutinib. So for patients who got abrutinib and the venetoclax, the 12-month estimate for PFS was 75%. Long-term follow-up for the study has not been published, so we don't have the long-term data here. There was 91 patients. Of note, the median number of prior lines of therapy here was four. So practically none of these patients had received a BDK inhibitor in the front line setting. Overall response rate was about 70%, and the overall response rate of 61% in the high-risk group of deletion 17P or TP53 mutated subset. So let's move on to the non-covalent PTK inhibitors. There's currently two that are in advanced stages of development. One is pirtabrutinib, the other one is nemtabrutinib. So here is just an infographic showing you how pirtabrutinib can bind to the kinase binding domain without involving C481, where the largest amounts of resistance mutations forms when cysteine turns into serine, as we discussed in the previous slide. So the main study that looked at pirtabrutinib with the longest follow-up is the Bruin study. This was a huge trial that included multiple different hematologic malignancies that had over 600 patients. Here I'm showing you just those patients who had CLL or SLL. So this was relapsed refractory CLL, SLL. All patients had to have received a prior BTK inhibitor. This is the waterfall plot. The light blue is patients who stopped the BTK inhibitor due to toxicity. The dark blue is patients who stopped the BTK inhibitor for progression. And the stars are patients who received, also received prior BCL2 inhibitor, venetoclax in this case. And as you see here, it didn't matter whether or not you progressed, it didn't matter whether or not you stopped for toxicity, and it didn't matter whether or not you got BCL2 inhibitor before pirtabrutinib, these patients did remarkably well. And the overall response rate in this trial was 82.2%, which was similar for those patients who also got prior BCL2. TP53 mutations, C481 mutation status, and or deletion 17P status was also included in the study, and we have that in, I think, a follow-up slide. So here is the update from the Bruin study showing PFS, where now the median PFS has been reached at 19.6 months, just showing how well this particular drug is working in this setting. So another great thing about this drug is that it appears to be really well tolerated. So we talked about the various different side effects that BTK inhibitors can cause, specifically hypertension and atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation. Here on the bottom of this table, you can see that those patients who had, that there was a very low rate of atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter on this trial and hypertension the same. So I just want to highlight this appears to be a very effective drug for both patients who've received prior covalent BTK inhibitor as well as venetoclax, even those patients who had progressed on a prior BTK inhibitor and is very well tolerated. Nemtabrutinib is the other non-covalent BTK inhibitor currently in development. We don't have as much data for this particular drug. I'll show you now the study Bellwave 001, which I believe has an update at ASCO this year. So in this particular trial, there were two different cohorts. Cohort A was for patients who had a C481S mutation, and cohort B is for patients who did not have a C481S mutation. So here are the updated findings from this particular study, and it looked like this drug led to a overall response rate of 56% and 58% in patients who had the C481S mutation. On this chart, you can see the overall response rates for patients who had high-risk disease with deletion 17P, who had the C481S mutation, who had prior BTKI and BCL2 inhibitor. And as you can see, the overall response rates was pretty much the same across the board. It didn't matter what you've received prior or whether or not you had a mutation. 
So here's the Kaplan-Meier curve for the Bell Wave study. Cohort B, just to remind you, are those patients who had no C4A1S mutation. Although it appears on this particular curve that those patients did better than the cohort A, I just want to remind you that this is a very small number and we need more follow-up to really see if this drug works better when no BTK mutation is present. But still, it looks like the median PFS in totality was about 26.3 months. And cohort A, which is once again the patients who had the C481S mutation, was 15.7 months. Similar to pirtabrutinib, this drug seems to be very well tolerated. We do need longer follow-up to look at a lot of these adverse events. Specifically, I'll highlight the rate of atrial fibrillation here, which was only 4% in 112 patients. So this is a story that's really evolving now, and it really is resistance to non-covalent BTK inhibitors. So this was a big publication in the New England Journal of Medicine of last year that looked at patients who were treated on the Bruin study who had relapsed and then looked at what BTK mutations were present. And what they found was that for patients who progressed after pirtabrutinib, they did develop resistance mutations in BTK, but they weren't the same that we were seeing for the covalent BTK inhibitors. Specifically, this L528W mutation is what we call a kinase dead mutation where BTK is not able to signal anymore, which we weren't really seeing in the covalent BTK inhibitors. I say that now, but there's more and more data coming out about this particular mutation that may be present in patients treated with xanabrutinib and the other second generation BTK inhibitors. And so I think the story still needs to be told here, but it does look like when we treat patients with pirtabrutinib, they do tend to cause resistance mutations and how this will affect sequencing, whether or not we can go from a non-covalent to a covalent and whether the non-covalent BTK inhibitors should be put into the front line is still a big question mark. And we have to see how things pan out in the future. So there are multiple ongoing trials using these two drugs. There's the CLL322 study, which is pure tabertinib plus venetoclax plus rituximab versus venetoclax plus rituximab in previously treated CLL. There's the Bruin CLL321 study, which is pure tabertinib versus idelalisib plus rituximab or BR. There's another study with pure tabertinib that's not mentioned on this slide, which is in the upfront setting, which is pure tabertinib versus abertinib. And then for the Bellwave study, and I know they've opened up a bunch of new studies as well, there's nemtabertinib versus chemoimmunotherapy in previously untreated CLL without TP53 mutations. So really, the story is still yet to be told for these non-covalent BTK inhibitors, but they do appear to be very effective. So take-homes. So we have venetoclax plus anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. is the standard of care treatment option for patients who are refractory to or cannot tolerate BTK inhibitors. The BTK C481S mutation confers resistance to the covalent BTK inhibitors along with the various other mutations. Pirtabrutinib and nemtabrutinib are non-covalent BTK inhibitors that have shown efficacy in patients who are resistant to covalent BTK inhibitors, even in patients who have a C481S mutation. And resistance to non-covalent BTK inhibitors is a true problem and we'll have to see where the story goes as time moves on. So I think I have two cases to ask my colleagues. So I have the first one, which is a 73-year-old woman receiving frontline ibrutinib for symptomatic CLL. At baseline, she was IGHV unmutated, deletion 13Q with a normal karyotype. Over the past three months, she had a rising lymphocyte count, falling anemia, falling hemoglobin. And so you retested her markers, and she has a new deletion 17P along with new karyotypic abnormalities and a TP53 aberration on next-gen sequencing. So is she a candidate for the venetoclax or a non-covalent PDTK inhibitor? What do you guys think? All right. So, Bill, maybe I'll ask you to start on this one. Of course, the patient is a candidate for venetoclax. How would you choose here? I mean, you have a patient who could be on a non-covalent BTK inhibitor or venetoclax. Right. So today, for a non-covalent BTK inhibitor to be an option, it has to be on a clinical trial. Although pirtabrutinib is approved for mantle cell 
I have not been able to get it approved by insurance for patients with CLL. So I think it's a viable option. Today it's an option as a clinical trial, if you have a trial. Now the Bruin study is no longer enrolling, so it would probably require enrollment on the other Bellevue trial. So in this patient, my preference would be venetoclax-based therapy. Maybe a comment I'll make on that. While Murano has great data, I'm in favor of them putting the best foot forward in terms of CD20 antibodies. In my mind, obinutuzumab is a better CD20 antibody. So my preference in this patient is CD20 antibody naive if they've only had ibrutinib. So while there's substantial data with Murano with Ven rituximab, I probably would want to try obinven for this patient to enhance her likelihood for a response. And, and quick follow-up, so if, if you're going to do that one year, two years of Ven or MRD guided? Well, I don't know that it would be. So it's, it's hard to advocate MRD guided because there's really no data. But in practice, I would treat this patient at least for two years of therapy. She's a 17P deleted, mutated TP53. She's high risk. I'm uncomfortable stopping treatment for these patients. So I would check MRD. And if she's MRD undetectable, perhaps by MRD6, I would think about stopping treatment, particularly if she says, I need a break. If she's not undetectable, I would probably continue Continue therapy. the event. And that's exactly why I did this, where I yeah. made her more high risk when she progressed, giving her complex karyotype and a yep. deletion 17P, because it is a discussion of whether or not we should be continuing venuclex after the two years for this particular patient. And I think if you asked all of us what we would do, we would all probably tell you something slightly different. Okay, keep going. So yeah, basically venuclex is approved. However, non-covalent PDK could be useful once it is approved. So, a 68-year-old man with relapsed refractory CLL, IGHV, unmutated, normal fish panel, and karyotype. First line of therapy was BR in 2016. He relapsed with lymphocytosis in 2021. His second line, he got acalabrinib. He responded well, but developed recurrent atrial fibrillation despite supportive care and stopped treatment. So one year later, he presents with enlarging lymphadenopathy and lymphocytosis, worsening hemoglobin. What would you do? So, Nicole, would you go to Venn in this patient? If you had a trial for a non-covalent BTKI, would you try that? Or would you even consider going back to a different covalent BTKI? Well, that's a good question too. He developed recurrent AFib and stuff too. So, you know, when we talk about AFib, sometimes it depends on, you know, if they are still in AFib and on medications, that conversation I think is worthy of discussion, right? Because then you can say, hey, you're already on medication. You know, do you want to, if you need a drug, could you then retry them on a BTK? And I think that's a complete option. I think for patients who develop AFib and then they are converted back and go into normal sinus rhythm and are not on cardiac meds, and then you tell them this could happen again if we try, they're a little less likely to want to do that again. But you do discuss it with them because it could always offer, right? If you need the drug, you know, we hearken to the days when we first had a brutinib. Remember on those early studies, these patients were multiply refractory to, you know, all the chemo immunotherapy agents we had at the time. And you better believe if they developed AFib, because we had no other choices, they were still staying on drug while they had AFib. But you have multiple options here. So normally I would, Ven OB, Ven Retux is completely reasonable in this patient. He's unmutated, but he has a normal fish. I think that's an option. Again, the whole issue about the non-covalence, you still have to talk about AFib with them and whether or not, if you have a clinical trial, I think that's completely reasonable to put this person on a clinical trial, of course. But I think Ven Retux would be fine. Great. Okay, Adam? Yep. So I just said I would prefer venuclax in this particular patient. And I you know I thought about this a lot about whether or not I'd feel comfortable putting this patient on peer to brutinib if I could, given the refractory atrial fibrillation. But I think the data that we have that shows that peer to brutinib has very low rates of atrial fibrillation, I would really think about it. So time will tell and we'll go from there. Okay. So let's move now into our final section. And so Bill's going to take us through the challenge now of double exposed disease. 
Okay, I'm going to talk about double refractory disease, which is a little, there's some complexities to the discussion. I would submit to you that patients with double refractory disease have an unmet clinical need. There's really no standard of care for patients with double refractory disease. In my mind, true double refractory disease is progression on both a BTK inhibitor and venetoclax-based therapy, progression while on treatment. So there's a few complexities to the discussion, the first of which is the fact that venetoclax has been studied in fixed duration treatment as well as continuous therapy in the early trials, particularly in the pivotal trial with patients with relapsed refractory 17p deleted CLL who were treated with continuous venetoclax-based therapy. The second complexity that comes to mind is the fact that we now have or will soon have available the non-covalent BTK inhibitors. So you're able to stay in target with another agent by switching the agent where patients who can develop resistance, we know for those patients who develop resistance to the covalent BTK inhibitors, you can see responses that are durable with the non-covalent or reversible BTK inhibitors. And then the other complexity is the fact that we have data now with combined therapy. These combinations are getting patients in very deep remissions and those remissions are lasting very long. And so again, sticking with the pure definition of double refractory being patients who are progressing on both agents. We don't really have any data about retreatment yet in patients who've had combined therapy and who relapse. And also there's very limited amount of data for patients who are treated with venetoclax-based therapy and are retreated with venetoclax-based therapy, as you heard. So this table sort of summarizes those different scenarios where you can start on a BTK inhibitor. Patients will potentially progress on treatment and develop refractory disease and they get switched to venetoclax-based therapy etc. So you can go through those different scenarios. And again, the double refractory patient really is the population that has an unmet need, that we need new treatments. And if you have those patients in your practice, please refer them to us because we have more clinical trials now than we have patients to fill those trials. And so there's a great need to see those patients at academic centers. In terms of venetoclax retreatment and some data that shows activity with retreatment with venetoclax, this is a retrospective analysis of a relatively limited number of patients who had received venetoclax, and we'll see data in terms of the response to the first treatment with venetoclax, and then were retreated subsequently at progression with a second course of venetoclax. Most of these patients, as you can see there, had venetoclax as their, the first time they had venetoclax, they had it as a treatment for their relapse disease. And so these are not patients, most of these patients are not receiving venetoclax as their frontline therapy. They're mostly receiving their first venetoclax as a relapse treatment, and they're relatively enriched for high-risk features, 17P deletion, unmutated immunoglobulin gene, et cetera. And these are the data. You can see the overall response on the left for first treatment with venetoclax-based therapy. The orange is a complete remission, and the blue is the partial remission rate. So about 50% complete remission, 50% partial remission to first treatment with venetoclax. Some patients with stable disease, 4.3%. And then at second treatment with venetoclax, you can move over to the right and see the VEN2. Complete remission rate is a bit lower at 33%, and the partial remission rate is 42%. And then to the right of that, you can see the progression-free survival curve for patients with their second venetoclax-based therapy with a median that looks to be about 20 months. This retrospective data supports activity with retreatment with venetoclax-based therapy after patients had had a prior venetoclax-based treatment. We have seen that in our practice 
And then Matt is working on a prospective trial called the Revenge Trial, where patients who have received venetoclax as first-line therapy are eligible for retreatment, and they're cohorted based on how long their first remission is after the venetoclax-based therapy. You can see in that cohort one, greater than two years, versus cohort two, which is between one and two years following treatment with their first venetoclax. And you can see the number of patients proposed for those cohorts, and the primary endpoint being the overall response rate at the end of combined therapy. And so this trial will generate data with regard to retreatment, and particularly for patients who receive venetoclax in the frontline setting. And then you can see the secondary endpoints. So what do we have now available for these patients who are double refractory? I'm going to walk you through the data for the CAR T-cell therapy. So CAR T-cell therapy, as you know, is available for other B-cell malignancies. The scenario is shown here in this cartoon where patients have leukophoresis with harvest of their T-cells, which are genetically modified in the lab to express this chimeric antigen receptor and then reinfused into patients. And the trials that have been done have used CARs that have been directed against CD19, which is expressed on CLL cells, as well as normal B-cells. So the Transcend CLL004 trial is a trial done in relapsed refractory patients with CLL. This shows you one cohort, which is the CAR T-cell or lysocell product as monotherapy. There's a second cohort, and I'll show you a bit of that data later on. These are all patients who had failed prior therapy with a BTK inhibitor or were ineligible and received a single dose of CAR T-cell after lymphodepleting chemotherapy. And this was published previously in blood and will be updated, and I'll show you a slide with the updated data, but it was previously published, Tanya Siddiqui is the first author, with an overall response rate of 82%. There were two dose cohorts, a lower dose cohort, 50 million CAR T-cells, and a higher dose, 100 million CAR T-cell cohort. You can see overall 22 patients included with nine in cohort dose level one and 13 in dose level two, but overall 45% of the patients achieved complete remission, 82% was the overall response rate. If you look at undetectable MRD status in blood in the dark blue bars or bone marrow in the light blue bars, you can see a high level of undetectable MRD, 75 and 65% overall for those patients in blood and bone marrow respectively in the combined cohorts. In terms of duration of response on the left and progression-free survival on the right, these responses have been relatively durable. You can see highlighted in that those green curves for duration of response and progression-free survival, patients who are the double refractory population, patients who have failed BTK inhibitor and venetoclax-based therapy, doing similarly well to the overall cohort in terms of PFS and duration of response. Median PFS, I'll point out, of approximately 13 months, Duration of response, median of about 17 months. Toxicity-wise, the two toxicities that we focus on with the CAR T-cell therapy is cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. At the top there, you can see overall grade 3 or greater cytokine release occurred in about 9% of those 20 three patients available for safety. If you look down at the bottom part of the table, grade three or higher in about 20, 21% for neurotoxicity, grade three to five. No grade five toxicities for either CRS or neurologic events.
I will point out that those are a bit higher than data that's been published for this product in DLBCL, which is somewhat interesting in my view, particularly given these more recent updated data. So this is the data that's going to be reported, I believe, on Tuesday by Tanya Siddiqui. It's an updated analysis. The trial continued enrollment beyond the publication of that first paper in Blood. And so focusing on that first curve, referred to as the PEAS at dose level 2, this was a cohort of patients who were double refractory, refractory to BTK and BCL2-based therapy, who received dose level 2 and were valuable for response. And so the primary endpoint for the trial was the complete remission rate among that cohort of double refractory patients who had received dose level 2. And you can see that it met its primary endpoint with a complete remission or complete remission with incomplete recovery of counts, 18.4%. So that was statistically significantly greater than their null hypothesis, which I believe was 5%. Overall response rate was 43%, which was not statistically significantly different than the null hypothesis of, I believe, 40%. But the primary endpoint, again, was the CRCRI rate and was 18.4%. There was a second cohort for the Transcend study, which was combined lysocell and ibrutinib. And this data has been published, uh, not published yet, but it's been updated at ICML most recently. And you can see it was a cohort of 22 patients. And on the left, you can see the response rates focusing on the combined cohort of 22 patients. And then to the right, you can see the undetectable MRD rate in blood in blue and in bone marrow in the orange bars. I don't have the toxicity data here, but it does appear that there's a, now this is a randomized trial and the comparisons are not statistically significant, but it does appear that there may be a reduction in toxicity when combining the lysocell with ibrutinib. And this combination was based on data that had been reported by single institution studies, particularly from the University of Washington, Fred Hutch group, as well as the UPenn group. We will see more data with regard to CAR T-cell therapy in CLL And we do expect that that data that I just showed you with the primary endpoint will be submitted for review by the FDA for potential approval. So stay tuned for that. Another interesting compound that's in development and under study is epcaritimab. This is a bispecific antibody. There's limited data with the bispecifics. Epcaritimab is a CD20, CD3 bispecific, so it brings together the CLL cells and T cells and triggers the T cells to activate and react against the CD20 positive cells, which in this case would be CLL and or Richter's. So there was a cohort of 10 patients that were reported with Richter's transformation who had received epcaritimab map on this trial. And the treatment was tolerated, well tolerated, I would say, relatively well tolerated with some cytokine release observed. And there was activity. So the overall response rate was 60% in the Richter's patients, again, 10 patients, and the complete remission rate, complete molecular or complete metabolic response rate was 50%. So this trial is expanded and is a multi-center study now enrolling Richter's transformation with the intent to also expand it to relapsed refractory CLL. So we'll see more data on that. There are a number of other interesting agents that we're studying, which I'd like to just mention, one of which is a protein kinase C beta inhibitor. That's under investigation. That's a 
a small molecule inhibitor. Protein kinase C beta being a molecule downstream of the B-cell receptor signaling pathway, which in preclinical work is an appealing target for patients, particularly those who are refractory to BTK inhibitors. MALT-1 inhibitors are in development. There are other bispecific, mosentuzumab. There is a class of drugs that I didn't mention that are BTK degraders that are also under investigation and may allow us another opportunity to remain in target, i.e. BTK, with a different mechanism of action. And then also some small molecule inhibitors of BCL2 and BCL-XL. So a lot of activity, a lot of interesting and exciting compounds and agents. So again, if you have those patients who are developing refractory disease, please refer them for our clinical trials. All right, so the case is a patient, actually a patient of mine who is a 65-year-old lady diagnosed with CLL in 2014. She had high-risk disease at the time of her diagnosis, 17-peta lesion, mutated TP53, unmutated immunoglobulin gene, and her karyotype was diploid. She received first-line therapy on the ABT199 trial with obinutuzumab, so she got 12 cycles of venetoclax plus obinutuzumab. She achieved a remission, but it wasn't a very long-lived remission, 18-month remission before she needed to proceed with next treatment, even though she experienced an undetectable MRD4 complete remission. At progression, she did not have Richter's transformation. She still had 17 peta lesion mutated TP53, and she went on to ibrutinib-based therapy with a duration of response to ibrutinib of 17 months. Again, short, but again, this patient had high-risk features with progressive disease. She had enlarged nodes. Again, no Richter's transformation, no BTK mutation. And at that time, we had available pirtabrutinib on trial, and she went on clinical trial and had a response, but the response duration was, again, 19 months. Now, that's the median progression-free survival for patients on the Bruin study in this group of patients. So that's sort of consistent with what we've reported out for pirtabrutinib, but she, again, had progressive disease. And at that point had failed or had previously received venetoclax-based therapy, not continuous venetoclax-based therapy, failed ibrutinib-based therapy with progression on ibrutinib, and then progression of disease on pirtabrutinib, a non-covalent BTK inhibitor. Is CAR T-cell the next logical step for this patient? Assuming availability, when should planning for CAR-T begin, and would then retreatment be an option? So maybe Adam, just in 30 seconds or less, how would you summarize that response for CAR-T? Yeah, so I would say that to Bill's point earlier, I would definitely put this patient on a clinical trial, number one. Number two, I would say that this patient does need some more definitive therapy, whether that's CAR-T or consideration for allotinic stem cell transplant, if this patient's a candidate for that. And then I would drop a line and just say that I've had some really good outcomes in patients who were multiple refractory who got the combination of BTKI and VENS. So that's something that you can try as standard of care is putting them back on the combination. But clinical trial number one, do the CAR-T allot now and consider doing the BTKI BCL2 inhibitor combination. She got a CAR-T cell treatment on a CAR T-cell trial. She responded, but it was somewhat transient, and then she went to allo stem cell transplant. And she's now, I believe, a year out from allo stem cell transplant on maintenance with a calibrutinib, MRD positive, but doing well. Great. Excellent. All right. So just a reminder that the CLL Society also has resources specifically about CAR T information. So you can check out that on the website. And now we do have a few minutes left actually for Q&A. So there's been a bunch coming in from online and from the group here. So I'm just going to try to get through a few of the high yield ones here. So Nicole, you mentioned in your talk that you may still consider a brutinib maybe in some patients in the frontline setting. Who, who would those patients be? You didn't say that specifically, but you kind of alluded to that. But is there anyone you'd, you'd start on a brutinib these days? <laughs> 
You know, to be honest, no. So I've moved on to the second generations, again, because of the head-to-head data from some of the safety issues. I tend to, newer patients, I tend to put on either Acala or Xanu. Although, again, if, I don't think it's unreasonable. And I also think drug availability, if there is a difference or there's an insurance issue, you know, you're going to put on what you can get. And I think that does depend on, you know, where you are and what insurance may cover. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I tend to put them on a second generation. Okay. Bill, this is a good question for you because you have some data from your center on this question and it comes up in clinic a lot. So if you have a patient who's currently doing well on a BTK inhibitor but wants to come off, would you consider adding venetoclax? Ah, so we have a trial that we did with consolidation with venetoclax that Philip Thompson was the PI on and that actually is in press. So we'll have data published on that trial. I believe it was about 70% of patients converted to MRD undetectable, MRD4 undetectable with the addition of venetoclax among patients who had been on ibrutinib for at least a year. So I think it's a reasonable strategy to consolidate patients and get them in a deep remission. We're also studying in the frontline setting fixed duration BTK inhibitor with CD20 antibody to answer or to get some data around, is it reasonable to give fixed duration BTK inhibitor-based therapy for two years with a CD20 antibody with a reasonable expectation for time off treatment after they finish that block of treatment? So it may be reasonable to interrupt treatment with a BTK inhibitor. So we don't have data to support that, but we're, gen- we're working on generating Fair some enough. data. Great. And then, Cole, we had a question around obinutuzumab monotherapy. So let's say you have a patient who you start on venobin, but they're not tolerating the ven well. You're a couple months in. Could you just bail on the ven and just give obin? And how would they do? I mean, obviously, if they're intolerant to having a problem on venetoclax or, or any oral agent, yes, you can interrupt. I think you just have to know, depending upon the amount of drug exposure that they've been on, the obinutuzumab will do well, but the response duration might likely be shorter because they're not getting the combination anymore. So it's not unreasonable. We know obinutuzumab does some great job at mopping up disease, but antibodies in general as monotherapy are not adequate, you know, in my mind when I think about it for, especially for frontline for patients with CLL, but certainly can it be done? Of course it can. You can think about switching the agent, of course, too, and switch to a BTK if they can't tolerate the VEN. But again, you just have to think about the exposure of what, how long the VEN exposure was, and certainly just know that the response duration just might be shorter. And then Adam, question around a patient who had frontline VEN and relapsed fairly soon thereafter, then had a BTK inhibitor, covalent BTK inhibitor progressed. So now you're trying to get them to a clinical trial. So would you go back to venetoclax? Would you try to get pertubrutinib? How would you try to bridge them to get to a clinical trial? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'll repeat that again. For those patients who I am looking to get responses in, I do combine them after they failed both prior lines of therapy. And there's some good data about that that we published recently by Dr. Hayek, his first author, and Blood Advances, if you want to take a look at it. But yeah, I use the combination. And then certainly you can use Ven as a single agent too to recapture response. I've also used single agent obinutuzumab on occasion here too, but I would try to use the Ven again with obinutuzumab here if I could. Okay, great. And then maybe last question for Bill, a question around TP53 aberrant patients. So the question's around, it sounds like most people would favor continuous BTK inhibitors for those patients, but is it okay to use venobin? How would you treat those, those patients? It's okay to yeah. use venobin. Yeah. The data that you showed with CLL14 in the frontline setting, venobin, fixed duration, one year of venetoclax with six cycles of obinutuzumab. The median PFS is about four years in patients who have a 
TP53 aberrant CLL. So fixed duration is a reasonable option for patients with 17P deletion, although my preference is to have them on a maintenance. Our data with our IV trial, which is two years of treatment in patients with 17P deletion, we see similar progression-free survival rates right now with our current follow-up at four years for patients who have TP53 aberrant disease versus those who don't. So, so far it's starting to look like we can probably have some security in fixed duration treatment for patients with 17P deletion. But for me, I'm not quite there yet. I like a maintenance concept for those patients until I see longer follow-up. I agree. Makes sense. All right. Well, that concludes our program. I'd like to thank all of our speakers, and uh, I'd like to thank Peerview again for organizing this. So thank you very much, and have a good evening. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This accredited activity has been developed in collaboration with our educational partner, the CLL Society. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KYR860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AbbVie, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck & Company Incorporated.